we declare it tonight, God. We want to be consumed by you. We declare all of your names tonight, God. All the names that we sang before, you're our Father, our Healer, you're our Savior, and you are our Refiner. So we just say yes and amen to all that that means for us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we're so glad that you are joining with us tonight at City Life at home, right? We're so glad that you are here and uh, at least digitally, I gotta say I'm a little not glad that you aren't here physically because I'm one of those preachers. I like call and response. I like when people yell at me and, and, and say amen and all of that stuff. And so I'm just gonna tell you right now, you can go ahead and turn your caps on, all caps on in the chat and just whatever you would say out here, go ahead and say it in there. Uh, I know I can't hear your encouragement, uh, but it will encourage somebody else tonight. And I especially challenge you, my students, Revolution Church, if you're watching uh, and you're in the chat, maybe parents, you can let your kids uh, kind of get on the keyboard or on the cell phone for uh, some of this to just say their amens. I want to see you. I want to hear you in that chat. Um, but anyway, we, we're so excited that you're here, excited to jump right back in to this series that we've been in called Protagonists Anonymous. And uh, this series, it's been all about these really characters, these people who played minor roles in the grand scheme of things. These are the characters that maybe you didn't hear about in vacation Bible school. Maybe uh, they didn't get their uh, five seconds of fame right at vacation Bible school or Sunday school. Uh, but we've been uh, telling their stories because we know that uh, all of the stories in the Bible have major lessons for us to learn. And so tonight, we are going to be looking at the protagonist, uh, Absalom. And so if you've got your Bibles at home, you can go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 19. I'll give you a second to flip there or scroll there if you've got your phones. But 2 Samuel chapter 19, starting in verse 1, it says this. It says, Word soon reached Joab that the king was weeping and mourning for Absalom. As all the people heard of the king's deep grief for his son, the joy of that day's victory was turned into deep sadness. They crept back into the town that day as though they were ashamed and had deserted in battle. The king covered his face with his hands and kept on crying, Oh, my son, Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab went to the king's room and said to him, We saved your life today and the lives of your sons and daughters and wives and concubines, yet you act like this, making us feel ashamed of ourselves. You seem to love those who hate you and hate those who love you. You've made it clear today that your commanders and troops mean nothing to you. It seems that if Absalom had lived and all of us had died, you would be pleased. Now go out there Congratulate your troops, for I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a single one of them will return here tonight. Then you will be worse off than ever before. So the king went out, took his seat at the town gate, and as the news spread throughout the town that he was there, everyone went to him. God, I pray that you would speak to us through your word. I pray, God, that you would reveal 
what it is that you want to reveal for each and every one of us. I believe, God, that this word that we're receiving tonight, myself included, is for us right here, right now. So whoever's watching, whoever's listening, God, I pray that you would speak directly to us in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. So speaking of protagonists, one of my favorite protagonists, all-time favorite protagonists in a movie is the character Baby Driver. I love the movie Baby Driver, and uh, we talk about this a lot (laughs) um, at uh, staff meetings and things like that because Pastor Fred, if you know Fred, he is a movie buff, and uh, I'm known for liking kind of quirky movies and him not so much. And so this this movie comes up a bunch, but I love Baby Driver uh, for a lot of reasons. He has a good soundtrack, (laughs) good playlist uh, that plays throughout the movie. But one of the reasons why I love that movie and I love that character is because I have a thing for heist movies. I love a good bank robber movie where people are trying to break into a vault or to a casino. I like Ocean's 11, 12, 13, not so much 8, right? We don't talk about Ocean's 8, but I love, uh, I love bandits. I love Italian job. I love those kind of heist movies. And if you're like me and you like watching these movies where uh, people are breaking into stuff and you're, you're kind of like rooting for them, you realize as you're watching, or maybe you should, I hope you realize as you're watching a uh, dang, I'm cheering for the bad guy, right? Like the people who we cheer for in these kinds of movies, in real life, we would be calling criminals. In real life, we would be calling the bad guys, and yet they happen to be the protagonists of these movies. Maybe you're not a heist movie person. Maybe you're a mobster movie person, a gangster film guy. And so maybe you like... uh, uh, the Godfather, maybe it's Scarface. There's a lot of villain movies, uh, movies that uh, kind of tell the other side of infamous villains, right? Like Maleficent or most recently The Joker. All of us have experienced this at least once when we're watching a movie and the protagonist is not a good guy, but a bad guy. You know what I'm talking about? When you realize, wait a minute, <laughs> I care for this person. I'm rooting for this person. And yet what they're doing is not something I would condone in in real life, right? If we were to look at the full story of Absalom, starting in 2 Samuel chapter 13, we would realize very quickly that this is not a good guy. This is really usually the victim, the, uh, not the victim, but the villain in the story. And so uh, it's interesting that David here, who is the king, in 2 Samuel chapter 19, it says he's a mourning for his son. This person who had made himself an enemy to the king. Let me just tell you a little bit about Absalom. This is who Absalom was. He, he did have favor with the people. He was known, it's funny, the Bible actually goes into detail about his hair. And it says that he was this good-looking guy with long flowing hair. And if it wasn't uh, culturally inaccurate, I might be tempted to compare him to like Fabio, right? With like blonde flowing hair in the wind. He was that guy, right? And everyone, when they saw Absalom, they looked up to him. Absalom was a wooer. You know, those guys who are just, they're good with people and they make you feel good about yourself. It says when people used to go to Absalom, they would kind of, they would kind of get on their knees and they would go to kiss him. And he'd say, no, 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 get up, get up, get up. It's all good here. You know, we're, we're equals. He was that guy. But he was doing all of that because he was planning this 
uh, uh, rebellion against his father, who was the king. When people would come to, to, to talk to David, he would intercept them. It was One of the, the things that a, a king did back then was they would hear the complaints of average, everyday people, and then they would judge. They would, they would help the people with their complaints. Well, Absalom was intercepting these people and making people believe that, no, no, the, the, the king, David, he doesn't care about you. He doesn't care about your problems, but I do. Tell me your complaints, and I'll tell you what I would do for you. If that wasn't bad enough, Absalom was a murderer, He killed his brother, and as I just said, he launched a violent uprising against his own father with the intention to kill him. Maybe worst of all, and I'll keep it PG because I know we've got whole families watching our live stream together, but publicly defiled women in the palace for all to see just to get at his dad. This is Absalom. This is the dude we're talking about tonight, the dude that King David weeps over. It might sound crazy to you now that you hear all that backstory about who Absalom was, that anyone would weep over him, much less at the, at the, in the war that he started against his dad, right? But we do this all the time. We watch movies and we see deplorable characters like uh, Scarface, right, do terrible things. And at the end of the movie, when they die, we mourn. We're sad. It's because filmmakers, they're masterful at getting us to humanize these these characters. They humanize these characters so that we can empathize with them. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. How do we, without the movie magic, do that? How do we, when we're looking at our enemies, when we're looking at people who should be our antagonists, how do we choose to love them, choose to mourn when they mourn and weep when they weep? How can we view our antagonists as protagonists? In other words, how can we fulfill the demand of Jesus to love our enemies? I'm going to give us three points tonight. The first is this, it's empathy. See, David is able to empathize with Absalom, not only his son, but his enemy, Because David makes him the protagonist of his own story. Let me read you this definition of protagonist. A protagonist is the main character of a story. They're the center. They make the decisions. They experience the consequences of those decisions. The protagonist is the primary agent propelling the story forward and is often the character who faces the most significant obstacles. It's interesting that when we're living our lives, we tend to view ourselves as the protagonist, right? And so when we make mistakes, when we mess up, when we do something wrong, we know the backstory. We know the the things that have led to the moment that drove us to our bad decisions. But when it comes to our enemies, not so much, right? Let me read this. To love our enemy is to make them the protagonist of their own story. To love our enemy is to walk in their shoes, keeping not only the decisions they've made in mind, but also the obstacles that may have prevented a better way. It's to watch them as if they are the main character of their own story rather than the antagonist in yours. It's to root for them when they succeed and to mourn for them when they fail. I know we are up against a very difficult climate in our country right now for this kind of command to love our enemies because 
People have been saying for a very long time, right, that been hearing that for years, that America is a very polarizing country. We polarize one another, especially when it comes to politics. I would say in 2020, we've gone even beyond that. And we don't just polarize people, we demonize them. And when we demonize our enemy, we forget their humanity. Demonizing is literally dehumanizing. And here's the risk of living like that. Demonizing people distracts us from fighting the real battle against the real enemy, the real demon, the devil himself. Ephesians 6, 12 says, For we are not fighting against flesh and blood, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Can I tell you, getting us to hate each other online is not a, 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 a Russian uh, uh, strategy that's new or unique to Russia, right? This is the plan of our original enemy, the devil. This is what he likes to do. He likes to divide us because when, when, when we're divided, what happens when we demonize people is we're unable to separate the principle, the principalities from the person. And all of a sudden, we're no longer fighting the devil, we're fighting the people that God came to this earth and died for. Demonizing the person does nothing to win the spiritual battle. You know that, that story where, where Jesus turns to Peter. We know this story, right? Where, where, where Peter is trying to convince Jesus that he doesn't have to die. And, and Jesus turns to Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. You know what I think is happening in that moment? Jesus is not name calling. We know that Jesus is better than that. What Jesus was doing is he was separating the person from the principality. He wasn't speaking to Peter. He was speaking to the, the devil. He was speaking to the principality. He was speaking to the spirit that was influencing what Peter was saying. And so if I can make it personal for us tonight, we have politicians, right, that, that we see that, and I'm, uh, you know, you can... We all have our own, right? And so maybe you can just imagine the politician that when you see them on the news or when you see them on TV, right, they make your skin crawl. And, and the politician that you see, there's no redeemable quality in them. The politician that you have dehumanized because you've demonized them. What I want you to do is I want you to think about all the things that that person says and all of the things that that person does that makes you angry. And that then becomes the enemy. Guess what? I hate racism. I hate social injustice. I hate disregard for human life, be it born or unborn. I hate those things. And if I get distracted by the people who espouse those beliefs, then I'm no longer fighting racism and social injustice and disregard for human life. I'm now fighting against a politician and the devil loves that because he knows it's powerless. We're talking about this person instead of the issue. Maybe this sounds like a, a, a tall order for you tonight to begin to humanize that politician or whatever, that person in your life who's difficult for you to love, the person you're realizing now that you've demonized. If it's difficult for you, if it sounds like a tall order, can I encourage you? You were once an enemy of God. You were. You were an enemy of God and God loved you despite. Romans 5.10 says, while we were, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. If we keep reading in Romans, we find in Romans chapter 8, not only are we reconciled, but we become his sons, we become his daughters. We were enemies. 
We were enemies. Like Absalom was to David, and yet, like David saw Absalom, God now sees us as his sons, as his daughters. But Jesus did not just die so we can be reconciled to him. He also lived so that we can be reconciled to one another. One of my favorite passages of scripture, uh, Philippians 2, 5 through 7, it says that we have to have the same attitude as Jesus, who didn't just kick it in heaven. He wasn't content with staying up there, but he humanized himself. He came down to earth. He put himself in our shoes so that we can be reconciled to God. Before Jesus died for us, he made himself human for us. In other words, he supernaturally empathized. God put himself in our shoes. So there isn't a single one of us who could say, we're too good to be able to empathize or we're too far apart to be able to be able to see something from another person's perspective because that's what the perfect God of heaven did for you and he did for me. In order to love our enemies, we have to see them first as humans, as protagonists of their own story rather than the antagonists in ours. If we are going to love our enemies, we have to empathize and we also have to draw boundaries. 2 Samuel 19, if we pick back up in verse 5, it says, Then Joab, Joab was the, the uh, general of David's army. He was the general, the head of all of the Israel uh, military. And so you can just imagine if you're a Black Panther th- fan, right, that he, this is like Okoye uh, to T'Challa, okay? This is the general. And so Joab, you can just Okoye, right, went into the king's room and said to him, remember David, he's been weeping all day long for his son who's been uh, killed in battle. And the general, this is what he says, he says, we've saved your life today and the lives of your sons and your daughters and your wives, and yet you act like this, making us ashamed of ourselves. You seem to love those who hate you and hate those who love you. Can I tell you this? When we empathize with people, when we empathize with our enemy, it's going to confuse people. When we empathize with our enemy, people are going to look at us and scratch their heads and say, this doesn't make any sense. It makes me think of John chapter 8, when Jesus is confronted with uh, the woman who was caught in the actual act of adultery, right? And it says that the Pharisees and uh, the, the religious teachers of the time, they brought this woman where he was teaching publicly. They brought this woman to Jesus and threw her at his feet because they wanted to test the limits of Jesus's empathy, They wanted to see in the face of this deplorable sin, which the Bible is clear about, right, sexual sin, they wanted to know how far Jesus would go with his empathy. And what does it say? It says that Jesus defended the woman. He who is without sin cast the first stone is what he said, right? They all left, and he defends this woman. If we're going to be like Christ, we need to defend the humanity of our enemies, We need to humanize even and especially when the onlookers would expect us to demonize. But just because God calls us to defend our enemy, it doesn't mean he calls us to leave ourselves defenseless. Joab says in verse 7, Now go out there, talking to David, and congratulate your troops, for I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, 
not a single one of them will remain here tonight. Then you will be worse off than before. What is Joab saying? He is not thinking as a father to a son. He's thinking as a general to an army. And he's saying, look, you've lost all of your troops. If they leave, then you're going to be defenseless. David was thinking of his son while Joab was thinking of his safety. And what can sometimes make it difficult to love our enemy is that our instinct is to protect ourselves. And it overpowers the imperative to love. And some of us, if we are honest, are a little more Joab than David, right? We're a little more genital, right? We're a little more uh, defensive than we are empathetic to other people. But there are others of us who identify with the enemy to the point where it becomes dangerous. God calls us to defend the humanity of our enemies and to defend the contents of our own hearts. Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart above all all else, for it determines the course of your life. And so what do we need to defend in our hearts? First, we need to defend our our vulnerabilities. I know this will come as a shock to some of you, but sometimes your enemy becomes your enemy, not because of all the stuff that they did, but also some of the stuff that you do, right? It's not a a one-way street. Sometimes our enemies are our enemies, not only because of their sin, but also because of ours. When I say we have to put defenses up around our weaknesses, our vulnerabilities, what I'm talking about is our buttons. You know your buttons, right? The people who push your buttons, those you might consider an enemy in your head, but consider the fact that the buttons that they push are actually your own proclivity to sinfulness. Think about that person who makes you mad every time they post something online, right? And just, oh, they fire you up. And all of a sudden, when you see whatever they post, it's like you have no control. It's like that, uh, that meme from uh, Ace Ventura meme, right? Where your, your fingers are just, you can't control the words that are coming out of your fingertips. And all of a sudden, you lose control. Guess what? That's your sinfulness, not theirs, right? What they said, what they did, it might be sinful. It might be wrong, but guess what? You also have weaknesses. And so you got to defend against your own, your own sinfulness, your own tendency towards anger or resentment. Not all of our enemies are people who make us angry. Some of us, we've made enemies out of people we're jealous of. And you know who I'm talking about. They're the person who you scroll on their Facebook or their Instagram page and, and, and your friends, but you get this just bitterness when you see their house or their job or their family or their life and you want it. And all of a sudden this enmity rises up in you and you want to gossip and you want to complain and you want to think bad thoughts. That's your problem, not theirs. What about this one? Sensitivity to criticism. Some of us have made people enemies to us because they criticized us. And maybe they didn't do it the right way. Maybe they didn't do it at the right place. Maybe they weren't even the right person to do it. But maybe you needed that criticism, right? And we make enemies out of these people, not because of what they do or say, maybe a little bit, but also because they push our buttons and they lead us to places that we don't like. As we have empathy for our enemies, we also have to take Joab's advice. Even as we empathize with our enemies, we have to build defenses around our own proclivity to sinfulness. Sometimes you have to unfollow a person to protect your ability to see that person as a human and to love them. And what I'm not talking about is getting on Facebook and publicly uh, uh, declaring who all of the people that you're going to unfollow, right? Because this is a defensive move, not an offensive move. 
right? We're, we're not uh, raging war against people who are sinful because of their sins. Remember, it's about your sin. It's about drawing boundaries around yourself. And you can subtly, quietly, humbly uh, put that person on mute or pause and put some distance between yourself and that person just so that the next time you see them in real life, you can love them. You can hug them. You can pray for them without knowing what meme or, you know, they just posted at lunch today, right? We got to put space between us and our enemies sometimes so that we can love them. Defend your vulnerabilities and protect your conscience. After Jesus defends the humanity of the woman who committed adultery, it's interesting. You know what he does? He turns to her and he says to her, sin no more. Though he defended her humanity, he did not defend her sin. We still, even as we are embracing people, we still have to draw boundaries around what is right and what is wrong. If we're not careful, we can love our enemies in a way that corrupts our own conscience. You know, conscience, can I just teach you this real quick about conscience? Conscience is not like um, this, this God thing that's inside of us. Our conscience is a human mechanism of what is right and what is wrong. And our conscience can be, the Bible says, seared. Our conscience can be uh, led astray. And so sometimes if you put yourself, 1 Corinthians 15, 33, it says bad company corrupts good character or good morals. If you fraternize with the enemy, sometimes your, your, your conscience can be corrupted by the people that you hang out with. But we still, as we draw boundaries between us and these people who may corrupt our conscience, Strike this balance of empathy and love for them. It sounds difficult, but you know what? We do it all the time when we're watching that movie and we see them robbing the banks. Uh, We may empathize with the enemy, but what we don't do is go rob a bank after. (laughs) What we don't do is say that robbing banks is good, right? You can still empathize and still draw boundaries around your conscience. We need our Holy Spirits, not our enemies or even our friends, right, to, to, to define the, our conscience for us, and, uh, and he helps us make those decisions. We're defending, um, we're defending our vulnerabilities. We're protecting our conscience, and as we're drawing boundaries with our enemies, we are protecting our character. Sometimes, sometimes we need to create boundaries between us and our enemies, not because they push our buttons, not because they corrupt our conscience, but because they jeopardize our influence. What Joab says to David when he busts into his room after, I don't know how many days David was crying, he says to David, you've made it clear today that your commanders and troops mean nothing to you. See, David's troops were confused about his empathy, but they weren't just confused, they were also disheartened. David had failed his responsibility to them. And David, even though he had a responsibility to his son Absalom, he also had a responsibility to his troops. Paul gives us this advice in both 1 Timothy and Titus. He writes this letter, um, letters to Timothy, who was a young leader, and Titus, who was a young leader. He, he's writing this advice, same advice he gives to them. He says, to live above reproach. And I think it's interesting. It's instructive to us that uh, Paul gives these commandments to leaders and not just the average person. Because what this tells us is that the command to live above reproach is more about our influence than our reputation. I used to be confused about this. I heard that verse a lot in youth ministry and would think like, okay, I got to live above reproach. So that means I got to be really careful about who I hang out with because that, that, might, that might, you know, send red flags to other people and, and people might judge me. And all of a sudden it became about me. 
To put a boundary between you and an enemy for the sake of your reputation is selfish. But to put a boundary between you and an enemy for the sake of the vulnerable people in your life, that's responsible stewardship of your influence. Parents, if I could just talk to you for a second, if there is someone in your life, maybe even someone in your home, who you've embraced, you've loved, despite the lifestyle or the sin that they're in because you want to bring them to the Lord, that's awesome. But you also have to recognize the vulnerable people that you are responsible for. As you think about that person, you also have to think about your troops. We're called to accept, affirm, embrace the humanity of our enemies. But if our embrace corrupts the conscience of the people we lead, we are also responsible for that. And so what I'm not saying is that you stop embracing. What I'm saying is that you got to get creative about how you embrace and how you love. you got to do it responsibly and strategically because you're responsible not only for your enemy, but also for your troops, those young kids, right, those people in your life. And I'm not just talking to parents, all of us have a sphere of influence and people who are vulnerable, who look to us for the definition of what does it mean to follow Jesus. We've got to be conscious of how our embrace of our enemies uh, makes an impact on those people. How to love our enemies. We've got to have empathy. We've got to draw boundaries. And lastly, we have to forgive. The fact that David mourned the death of his son goes to show that he still had hope for reconciliation. It's amazing to me. Absalom was, after all, his son, but he was also, after all, the dude who was trying to kill him, right? And yet he still wanted reconciliation. As Christians, reconciliation is our main ministry. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that, in verse 15, it says, Jesus died for everyone so that those who receive his news will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message, this ministry of reconciliation. The key part, though, in that passage that I want to highlight is that it says if we're going to be ministers of reconciliation, if we're going to be ambassadors of Christ, then we have to realize what it says in verse 15, that our lives are no longer our own. We don't live for ourselves. We live for the mission, the message, the ministry of Jesus. We can afford this ministry. We can afford to forgive and to love and to want to reconcile with our enemies only when we realize who the real protagonist of the story is. You know, we rejoice at the end of movies when the bad guy gets what's coming to them, right? And uh, now I'm talking about like just your average normal movie. But I was, I was thinking about, I, I watched recently The Lion King with my daughter. And it was the, the actual version, right? The live action, live action version with her. And I realized for the first time ever how graphic that ending is. And I can say this in front of your kids because they've seen this movie. I'm pretty sure the movie's rated G, right? But, but what happens at the end of The Lion King is the enemy scar literally like gets torn to shreds by hyenas. And we're sitting there with our five-year-olds on our lap like, yeah, you know, like, good. The, the enemy got his. Why? Why are we able to do that? Again, it's movie magic. We feel that way because the movie is ultimately about one thing. The Lion King is about Simba. It's about the protagonist. 
and the antagonist, they're just a disposable obstacle in the way of what the protagonist wants. Again, we tend to see ourselves as the protagonist and our enemies as the disposable obstacles in the way of what we want. But if we're going to be people who are about this business, this ministry of reconciliation, we got to realize we are not the protagonist of the story. The main character of the story of all of history, including my life, is God himself. And God is not sitting up in heaven. God's desire is not that the enemy gets what's coming to him. What he wants is reconciliation with his enemies. And so, if we're letting our unforgiveness, our unwillingness to forgive, keep us from reconciling with one another, then it's actually us who is the obstacle of what God wants. We look at other people sometimes and we think, oh, the bad that they're doing or, or how they're getting in the way of God, what God wants to do or how they're getting in the way of what I want to do. We see them as antagonists. And when we do that, we, we make them this disposable obstacle. But what God is saying is there are no such thing as disposable obstacles. I literally died for all my enemies so that they can be reconciled to me so that we can have relationship. And now that you have been brought into this Guess what your job is? It's to not walk around picking out antagonists. Your job is to recognize how you are a tool to be used to help God's ministry of reconciliation bring that person back to him. As we close, I know we've, uh, I said that the protagonist is Absalom that we're talking about tonight, but I just wanna draw attention one more time to David. It's interesting, David in the Bible two times is called a man after God's own heart. And I've wrestled with this before because if you know the story of David, then you know that David was not a good dude all the time, right? David made some pretty serious mistakes. He also was a murderer. He also was an adulterer. He also clearly was not a very good parent sometimes, right? And so I've asked myself this question before, maybe you have too, is how can it be that, that the Bible says that David is a man after God's own heart when he's done all of these things? Like at what point, have you done that? At what point did David become the person that we're supposed to look to when we think about the heart of God? This moment that we find ourselves at here at 2 Samuel 19 is not the first time that David empathizes with an enemy. Absalom is not the first enemy David weeps over. If you know the story, you know his very first enemy was Saul, who had a hit out on his life and had David running around and hiding out in caves and in other countries. And David had plenty of opportunities to destroy Saul, to end his life. And yet he chose to have mercy. He chose forgiveness. He chose to hope for reconciliation. Empathy for the enemy is a pattern in David's life, and it's one that reflects the heart of God. And in the same way that David was always so eager to forgive, so is God. Maybe God was able to forgive so much of David's sins because David was so willing to forgive the sins of others. You know, just after Jesus gives us the command to love our enemies, He also gives us some teaching about judgment and forgiveness. Luke 6, 
verse 38, it says, give and it will be given to you. I know you're used to hearing this passage like right around tithe time, right? But give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, it will pour into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. That verse is not about generosity in the context that that verse is about judgment and forgiveness. And it's saying how you judge others is how you will be judged. Pressed down, shaken, running over into your lap. It also says how you forgive others is how you will be forgiven. Pressed down, come on, shaken, running over into your lap. And there might be people watching tonight and maybe you're at this point where you have a lot of enemies. You're at this point where it's really difficult for you to stop being so judgmental towards people. Maybe it's difficult for you to be forgiving. I want to remind you that you once were an enemy of God. And instead of judging, instead of giving you what you deserved, what he did is he made a way for you to be forgiven and to be reconciled to him. It might be that that person in your life doesn't deserve your forgiveness and they do deserve your judgment. Again, we talked about boundaries and making sure that we protect ourselves, but you know what? We still have to love. That's what the Bible calls us to do. And so I just, I wanna end tonight just with this prayer. If, you, if you're watching this and, and now you're having a revelation, man, of, of the great forgiveness that you've received in God and what that now compels you to do for those people you've been making enemies, if you need some prayer for that, you can push that prayer button and somebody can pray for you. If there's somebody in your life who, who, who you need help forgiving, if there's somebody in your life who maybe uh, you've drawn some unhealthy boundaries or maybe no boundaries at all and you need help from someone to just pray for you and help you to uh, ask the Holy Spirit to help you to, to make decisions about how to draw those boundaries. And lastly, if you're here tonight and you have never experienced that forgiveness of God, that we're talking about. Maybe you're looking at your life and you're saying, if someone were to make a movie about my life, I would definitely be the bad guy. If not the antagonist, right, then, then nobody would be rooting for me as the protagonist. If you've not experienced what it feels like to be reconciled to God by the gift of his son, Jesus, You can also hit that prayer button and somebody can pray with you and lead you through that, but come on. There's something powerful that happens in us when we realize how forgiven we really are. And maybe you have accepted that forgiveness, but maybe there's things that you need to confess. You need to make the reality of your own sinfulness bigger than the reality of other people's. We can pray for that tonight too. So let's just close in prayer for all of us. Lord, we thank you tonight. God, we thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you that you did not continue to consider us your enemy, God, but you call us your sons, you call us your daughters. Lord, I pray that each and every one of us will experience that forgiveness in a good measure tonight. God, make it be pressed down, 
May it be shaken together so all of it gets in there. May it be rolling out into our lap. Help us to experience how loved we are by you. And let that revelation change the way we treat our enemies tomorrow. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're so glad that you joined us tonight. We hope to see you either in person or online next week, but we're so glad that you're here.